Welcome to LSE for this evening's event. My name is Alison Rankin-Frost and I'm a Governor of LSE. This evening's event forms part of the Space for Thought Literary Festival, which this year focuses on revolutions, marking the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, but also a plethora of other anniversaries of revolutions in music, literature, international relations, politics, religion, and science. I'm very pleased to welcome our panelists to LSE today. They are Harriet Harman, Nicola Rollock, Ali Pollard, and Catherine Markal. Harriet Harman was elected as Labour MP for Peckham in 1982, joining a House of Commons which was then 97% male. She had three children while in Parliament. She's been politics' most prominent champion for women's rights, introducing the National Child Care Strategy, the Equality Act, and changing the law on domestic violence. She was the first woman to represent the Labour Party at Prime Minister's Questions. Her memoir, A Woman's Work, was published earlier this month. Nicola Rollock. <laughs> Nicola Rollock is Deputy Director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at the University of Birmingham. Nicola is lead author of the award-winning book, The Colour of Class, the Education Strategies of the Black Middle Classes. She's a patron of the Equality Challenge Unit's Race Equality Charter, which is aimed at improving the experiences and success of faculty and students of colour. Nicola was selected in 2015 as a Woman of Achievement by the Woman of the Year Council and was included in 2014 Parlist of Britain's most influential black people. <clears throat> Ali Pollard is a Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Navy. Having joined in 1987, she has had a varied and challenging career, most, mostly at sea since passing out from the Royal Naval College. Now employed within the Naval Personnel Area, she's conducting a short period as a career manager for warfare officers before returning to sea. In 2017, she will take command of HMS Northumberland. <laughs> Catherine Markel is a columnist for Swedish paper Aftonbladet, where she writes articles on, in Swedish and international <laughs> politics, <laughs> economics and feminism. She's the author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which was shortlisted for the August Prize and won the Lager Cranston Award. Each of our panellists will speak for five minutes about the headline progress and challenges of their sector. 
Then we'll have some discussion within the panel before opening the event up for questions from the floor. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE LitFest. And I'd ask you please to put your phones on silent. This evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be available as a podcast and video recording as long as there are no technical difficulties. <laughs> All the books that I've mentioned will be on sale after this evening's event and some of the speakers are available to sign copies of their books. So will you now please join me in welcoming our speakers. Right, so I think we're all going to do a little five-minute um, slot. And um, so I'm going to try and condense mine, but I'm going to start with what it was like way back, because some of you will remember it, but most of you won't remember. So I'm just going to paint a picture of how bad it actually was. Because when I was brought up, I was born in 1950, I'm 66 now, really there was the idea that men were superior, they knew more, they were more important, and that women were subordinate, and that the pinnacle of our aspiration really was to get a terrific husband. And then the summit of our aspirations thereafter was to be a great wife supporting this terrific husband. And... This is certainly the role of my mother's generation. And although women did work, working class women worked, you know, some women worked part-time, mostly women's work outside the home was not recognised or valued and women's responsibilities lay within the home and men certainly didn't regard themselves as having any responsibilities for looking after children or older relatives. And then there was the rise of the women's movement and I was very much part of that incredible, exciting movement that said, no, actually, men are not better than women and that saying that men are men and women are glad of it, well, we weren't glad of it. And we actually wanted to make all sorts of changes. We wanted women to be on equal terms in the law and the legal profession, um, in academia and the education sphere, in business, and also in politics, that actually our democracy was defective because 97% of the House of Commons were men and they were making decisions about men and women's lives but women were not having a say. So the idea of the women's movement was that we would surge into the House of Commons, we would make ourselves equal in numbers to the men, we would play an equal role in government, and then public policy would be miles better. And certainly that took quite a long time. Have I used up my five minutes now? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> so... Um, I joined the Labour Party because that was the party for equality and for change and for progress and um, got into Parliament in 1982. And then we were making that argument that there needed to be change in public policy. We finally got in in 1997 and then we were able to have a national childcare strategy to double maternity pay and leave, to change the law on domestic violence. And lots of changes were made. However, and I'd be very interested to see how my fellow panellists see it um, and how you see it, because I feel in a way we've got to a situation where most people will agree that treating a woman as unequal because she's a woman is wrong, but somehow still structures remain reflective of a time when actually 
women were regarded to be as second-class citizens. So we've got to the stage where, in theory, people want us all to be equal, but still making that happen in reality is quite a long way off. And one of the things which has yet to change markedly, although I'm sure all the men in the audience here, the younger men, will make me more optimistic about this, is the unequal division of labour in the home, is that for the most part it is the predominant responsibility of women to look after children and older and disabled relatives. And whilst there is inequality in the home, it is very difficult to achieve equality outside the home. So I'm looking forward to hearing that this new generation is going to have complete equality in responsibility within the home, and then it won't be an unfinished revolution at work. We'll be well on the way. I'm going next. So I have notes because I talk quite a lot and they're a way of keeping me anchored and focused. So I, we were asked to think a bit about progress and challenges and I have to admit, I have to begin with a confession which is that I find thinking about uh, progress within the academy quite difficult, um, mainly because the problems that we face are so incredibly stark. And I wanted to start with one or two figures. I wouldn't be an academic if I didn't throw in some figures. So we know that around 23% of UK professors are women. And there are a number of programmes on a national platform, but also within local universities, that are designed to support the progression of women, to help narrow and ultimately close the gender pay gap. Uh, An example in terms of the Academy is the Athena Swan Award, which is run by the Equalities Body for the Sector, the Equalities Challenge Unit. So I've said that 23% of UK professors are women, and you might say that actually that's a terrible number given what we know about the proportion of the general population who are women. And I would agree with you, but it's actually a more nuanced point and a more, I would argue, important point that I'd like to draw attention to, which is the point around intersectionality. My concern is that too often debates that centre on women are really talking about the needs and experiences of white women. And absolutely no consideration is paid to the intersecting role of race either as it pertains to women of colour or indeed as it pertains to white women. We're thinking about white, being white is also a racialised identity. We don't think about that. So it's the white part of white women that I want to kind of draw attention to. And we don't think about the advantages that being a white woman brings or the privileges that that brings. And there's perhaps actually maybe a few exceptions to that. One of them is, and I'm not being paid to say this, is Jane Garvey on Women's Hour, who often talks about the fact of being white, so she might not understand particular perspectives. And the other is Adele. (laughs) (laughs) So with that in mind, let's revisit that 23% that I mentioned and break it down in terms of race. And when we do that we find that 21.8% of professors are white women, compared to around 1.6% of women of colour. So that's uh, people who are from a black minority ethnic background. And again, you may say to me that actually you'd expect those discrepancies because actually proportionally there's different numbers of those groups within the population. And I would agree with you. So let's look at the data from a slightly different angle. 
If we were to pull all of the UK white uh, female academics into a room and ask those who are professors to put their hand up, it would just be 5.6% of that group. And this compares with 15.4% of white male academics who are professors. So in other terms, you're all, in other words, you're almost three times more likely to be a professor if you're a white male compared to if you're a white female. So if we take that same thinking... Keep an eye on my time. If we take that same thinking and do that same kind of equation, if you like, for people of colour, if we take all of the black and minority ethnic females um, and put them in the room and ask those who are professors to put their hand up, just 4.5% are professors as compared to 13.9% of their male counterparts. So in other words, you're more than three times more likely to be a professor if you're a, a, a man of colour. And we could break that down. So in terms of black academics in the UK, there are just around uh, 75 across the entire UK, 75 black professors, and only around one-third, one-third of those are, are black women, which I think is absolutely scandalous. I have a long list of the things that I want to see, but I, I'm mindful of time, so I won't go through my entire list, and I have to restrain my list, I should say. Um, what I would like to see is that every single initiative, programme, every time someone opens their mouth and talks about gender, that there is due regard to the intersectional element of it. One size does not fit all. I would also argue that the Academy is incredibly slow to catch up with uh, equality and diversity initiatives that are going on in, in other sectors, which we may speak to later. And I'd like to see a move away from the reason that women aren't doing well is because they lack confidence and they need to learn networking, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> um, I have a point about whistleblowing, but I might save that for later. And I also want to pick up, actually, on the point around... We use the term equality quite a lot. Um, and actually, I want to argue for equity... And the difference being that sometimes you have to apply particular strategies or initiatives for groups that are underrepresented. And we don't really make that distinction, certainly within the academy and within wider debates on um, equalities. And so in closing, I, I have a, a call for the white women in the room and my colleagues on the panel. I'm asking you to channel your inner Adele. <laughs> So be vocal and be proactive in the fight for gender equity, yes. But also let it be a fight that includes acknowledgement that you're white and that accrues certain privileges and also meaningful steps to address that and let it take account of the intersecting role of race. Okay, I'm afraid I have notes as well, but that's to stop me going down random military speak that would be <laughs> completely unintelligible to everybody. Um, uh, when I started this, I thought uh, um, uh, how I would uh, embrace a bit of how the Navy has changed in a snapshot. Uh, and I think this, the memory I have that has the greatest piece for this is I joined the Navy 20 years ago. Uh, it was four years after women had started going to sea. Uh, we'd only just changed from being the Women's Royal Naval Service to being full, fully paid-up members of the Royal Navy. Um, and 
two years ago when I was sitting as the second in command of HMS Richmond uh, and I was sat in my wardroom having a conversation with my junior officers and we were telling tales of how we'd got one up on our boss, always a favourite topic. Um, And I was telling a a a story of how my first commanding officer had written my report saying that he wouldn't bother giving me any recommendation for command because I was a woman and I was just going to have babies and leave. Clearly, 20 years later, I haven't, um, so that was my one-up on him. But when I was sat in that room, of mainly men, I will admit, I looked around and I saw my junior officers, who are 22, 23, including a young Royal Marines captain. Now, Royal Marines, not commonly known for their diversity, um, and they were absolutely horrified that somebody would have said that to me in a professional context. And I thought that was a moment where I felt we were starting to make some real progress. If that was the attitude and view of our junior officers, we were only going to see the situation continue to improve. So when I joined, there weren't very many role models at sea. There were hardly any role models at sea. And I think when I look now, we have our first female commanding officer of our phase one training establishment for ratings so as people come in through the door off the street as civilians aged 17 through to 35 the first commanding officer that they are seeing at the moment is a female captain and that's a really empowering message for them to to have likewise um, I'm off to take command in July I'll be the fifth woman to do that uh, of a frigate or destroyer um, I have already commanded as a, as a junior officer at one of the University Royal Naval Units. And as we look at the 14 units that are, in, uh, that are around the country, half of those are commanded by women. Uh, and the point I would make is that whilst quite often the services are seen as being hugely macho, um, and we do have our issues, don't get me wrong, and our representation as women is, is very low, um, approximately 15% um, of the Royal Naval Service are women at the moment. We have never suffered from a gender pay gap. From the day women became fully uh, Royal Naval officers, we have been paid the same as our male counterparts. And as we look now at how the Navy is changing in the last five years, uh, the last two bastions of all-male service, which were the submarine service and the mine clearance divers, have taken their first women in, um, both of them f- the first qualifying uh, clearance diver and submariner in 2014. Uh, and as of 2019, we will see the first female uh, recruits joining the Royal Marines. Um, so as we move towards women in ground close combat, and they are taking the lessons that have been learned from some of the frankly shocking things that I saw when I was uh, first joining which were nothing to do with structures. I would say that actually the military had looked very carefully at how it was going to structure these things. The issue was the attitudes of some of the men who, when I joined in 1997, some of these people had joined the Navy in 1970, 1965. And so their attitude was of utter shock that this establishment that they had joined, that they understood the rules of, was suddenly fundamentally being changed from underneath them. So I think that's where we, we are starting to see change. 
And I think that's me for now. <laughs> Hi, so I'm, I'm not completely sure if I'm supposed to speak uh, during these five minutes coming from my role as a journalist as somebody who, or as somebody who writes about economics or as from my role as being a professional Swede because when it comes to these, these issues, people are usually, oh, you're from Sweden, tell us all about how wonderful it is. Uh, and then you have to kind of disappoint people, which is, which is never, never fun. But, so I'm going to speak a little bit about all of it and then, then I'm sure there will be, there will be questions. So I, I'm a journalist, I write about economics, and economics is a very male-dominated field. Um, one of the stories that, that I often tell is when I was interviewing Eugene Farmer, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in, in economics a few, a few years ago, and he comes down, uh, it's in the old town in Stockholm, very snowy outside, and we've all set up, and he takes one look at me, and he says, so who wrote your questions? Uh, <laughs> because it was, um, it was assumed that, obviously, I couldn't have understood his theories, being, being a woman. Um, and, and that is, I mean, there, is, there are lots of studies about economics, and that economics is, for example, it's harder for women within economics than within the sciences to, to progress within the field, and there are lots of theories about why that is. And within economic journalism, I mean, you can only look at the FT. I, I play this game of looking at the um, common pages in the Financial Times every day and count how many days of the week all of the five pieces are written by men. It's a lot of the days of the week. Um, and I think this has to do with how serious we take economics, as there are few kind of things that are taken more seriously in society than economics. And when somebody starts speaking economics using these, this kind of terminology, it's sort of the end of the, end of the debate. Um, and and it, is, it is a male-dominated field. In my book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner?, I try to look at this sort of taking it all the way back to, to the beginning and look at the theory of economics and if there's something there that excludes women. And the founding question of economics is the question that Adam Smith asks in The Wealth of Nations in 1776, which is, how do you get your dinner? Um, we assume that there's going to be bread and, and, and meat and, anything to, and things to buy in the store, but for that to take place, actually, pretty complicated economic processes need to happen. So what keeps all of this together? And Adam Smith's famous answer to this question was, it's, it's not the benevolence of the butcher or the baker, it's through them acting in their self-interest that we get our dinner. So self-interest puts the dinner on the table, and that's what keeps the economic system going. However, which I talk about in my book, if you look at Adam Smith's life, um, the founding father of economics never married, and he lived most of his life with his mother, who looked after the household. And probably she had something to do with how he got the dinner on the table. Um, and did she do that out of self-interest or for some other reason? Um, and since, since then, economics has been called you know, even the science of self-interest. And the work that was not done for money out of self-interest was not considered work or not even considered economic activity. And that is in many ways still the case. So work within the home, care work, etc., unpaid work, is still not counted as part of GDP in spite of feminist economists fighting for this for 40 years um, or something like that. It's not happening. It's not measured. It's not valued. And the devaluation of care work is you know, a big part of, of, this, of this story. Um, 
And, you know, women's progress was made. Women, you know, came out on the, on the labor market. Um, and, but the, the kind of the contradiction with who's going who's gonna to do the care work at home, which, you know, Harriet was talking about, is not resolved, not, not even in Sweden. And obviously intersectionality plays a big part if you want to understand this, you know, in a, from an economic perspective, who looks after whose children and what race does that person have and how does that kind of tie into the chains of global care chains that sort of follow the global economy where women move from, from one part of the globe to another to look after other women's children, etc., which is, you know, a, a massive, massive part of this sort of globalized um, economy. And this, this contradiction between, in some way, competition on the market and care work is something that every society needs to resolve in order for women to progress and, and get ahead. And not even Sweden has resolved this issue. So Sweden is, is famous for, for its um, family policy. There's a story about an American tourist in, in Stockholm who walks around in the, in the city and then after half a day sort of asks um, her host, what's up with all the gay nannies? Um, because there are so many men pushing prams in Sweden. Um, and around 90% of all men in Sweden take some paternity leave. Um, and I think of, of all the paternity, the days of, of, of um, um, you, you can stay at home, men take about 25% of them. And there's been a lot of progress done in the last uh, 10 years. And Sweden invests around 4% of GDP in in this and in, in childcare and affordable and very, very high-quality childcare and gets this back because when you, when you invest this kind of money, women, more women stay on the labor market even after having children and then pay tax. So it sort of funds itself. Um, however, Sweden is not feminist paradise. Um, if you look at something like female executives or even just female managers in the private sector, Sweden is, is in, the, in the bottom of, sort of, of Europe when it comes to that. And the gender pay gap is still, I think women earn around 80% of what men earn, and that has been sort of not moving in the last 20 years. So even, you know, a more extensive kind of policy around these issues doesn't seem to automatically translate into sort of women advancing in, in all kinds of sectors. But I'm happy to talk more about this later. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to explore some of these, the points that you've raised a bit further. Um, Ali, um, to what extent do you think the progress of women in your sector has been affected by predominant cultures and behaviours as well as by the role requirements? Um, I think it's been hugely affected. The role requirements, um, I think, as soon as women started going to see the the role that we were expected to fulfil professionally was exactly the same as our male counterparts. Um, however, the assessment, the somewhat subjective assessment sometimes, um, particularly in the earlier years, of a woman's capability to fulfil those roles uh, was definitely uh, pretty negative. Um, I think as we see... Uh, society's attitudes starting to change um, as we see um, 
the generations of uh, officers who've come through training and ratings who've come through training with their female counterparts and seen them go through uh, all the training together, that is starting to see uh, a, a change in attitude further down the line. Um, I think the risk we have is we still, our representation or proportion of women is still so small that we're still having to have um, single-sex units. So there are some ships that are still all-male. Um, and you sometimes risk when you see somebody coming from one of those units to a mixed unit, they come with some slightly uh, interesting uh, viewpoints about things. Which I would say, in their <coughs> in their uh, favour, they do very quickly get over. But it is um, we still do have that sort of um, drawback to previous eras of the navy. No all female ships yet. No, not yet. <laughs> not enough of us yet. Can I ask? I'm just curious. How, how do you cope with those comments then? The when someone's come from a single sex. Uh, gen- do you have particular strategies? Generally, my response is yes, and they even let us drive warships now. <laughs> and Harriet, what experience have you had in the House of Commons? Well, I think that, <laughs> I think that, that the point that you were making, Ali, about how people had, you know, joined the Navy in the 1960s and it was how it was and that was the sense of uh, security of the institution and therefore suggestions to change it are seen as very threatening to the whole identity of it and Parliament had been 97% women and sort of 3% had been the level of women since about the 1950s. It's sort of, that's the correct amount some would get in, but only 3%. And the idea from the women's movement is that we should be on equal terms as men in decision-making on public policy and in government was regarded as very threatening by the men because it was like we were criticising them and saying that they were not representing the women in their constituency properly or they weren't good enough as MPs or that they were all going to be pushed out. So it was perceived by them to be a full-on attack on them and that caused a full-on backlash. So it was a very hostile atmosphere and to be having a baby while you were an MP or three babies was regarded as absolutely egregious. But on the other hand, outside the House of Commons, there was the women's movement. And to share this being part of an enormous women's movement who were all trying to make advances for women in all different sectors, it meant that there was voluble support. Although I was very isolated in the House of Commons, there was voluble support from members of the Labour Party, Labour councillors, women working in trade unions, just women generally in the, in the women's movement. So I think it is hard to be a pioneer. And part of the theory of the women's movement is that you do things collectively. It's about the sisterhood and actually the job of being a pioneer then if you're in a women's movement is to make sure that lots of other women come in as well and that you are not the only one because then you can make changes which benefit all women. But if I could just pick up the point about intersectionality that that Nicola made, I think that 
Inequality operates in so many ways, doesn't it? It operates on the basis of class, hugely, that class inequality is a big um, obstacle to equal outcomes and equal opportunity. It operates on age, um, and there are some things that it's perfectly fine for younger women to be doing, but actually not all right for older women to be doing. And it operates in relation to race, and it relates in, in, in relation to disability and sexual orientation. And I sometimes think that whatever we do that challenges inequality, it helps challenge all inequality, actually, because you're trying to challenge the status quo, and once it opens up and starts to begin to change, it's better across, across the piece. So I think, you know, there are some people who campaign on, um, on sexual orientation and on gay rights and don't campaign on disability discrimination. But I kind of feel that they are still part of the wider cause of campaigning for equality and that that's okay because it's all trying to make progress. Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying, and part of me wants to agree with you. But (laughs) it's not my experience, and it certainly isn't the experience of women of colour within the academy. And it's also not the experience of women of colour, and I know there's a question about this later, but I'm going to just wrap it into now, in terms of other sectors that I speak to. Um, So what you often find is that there may be events or initiatives that are to do with women or that's kind of positioned as about gender, but they're not speaking to my intersectional experiences. They're not talking about the experiences of women of colour, which would include, I mean, the, the, the classic, if you like, are comments about hair. And how does one... I asked that question about how do you respond because I'm really interested about how women of colour manage and respond and survive in spaces in which we're the minority, not just in terms of... in a kind of intersectional way. If I think about uh, the university sector, the people who run the universities are white men. So I, um, I sit in opposition to them in terms of both my gender and my race. But actually, they're more white women. So the events that happen, the women's movement, if you will, that happens within the sector is a white woman's movement. It's just the fact it doesn't have the word white up front because we don't really talk about what it means to be white. But actually, there are a number of advantages to being white, which is and one obvious example is that you can go to an event and be invited on the panel and know there'll be other white women on the panel. (laughs) And I'm not saying that's an issue, but sometimes it does present challenges for women of colour. So we often feel invisible and at the margins, even within a a, a women's movement. A wake-up call for me in regard to all of this is, yes, um, is, I mean... Haven't you been thinking about this? Ivanka Trump. You know, Ivanka Trump is publishing a feminist book later this year. And, you know, women who work. Uh, and, and to me, it's just been like, okay, if Ivanka Trump can publish a kind of, you know, white feminist lean-in book, what have we, you know, what has happened to the feminist movement if, if you know, the label is, is, you know, if she can do that? Uh, and if that kind of, is feminism so becomes something that is actually now compatible with, you know, her father's 
policies, which she has been supporting all the way along. And, and that's been a wake-up call to me about, you know, just how, you know, this, yes, I, I agree with Harriet as well, but, you know, you can't water it down and water it down and water it down. Not that you, you're doing that, but there's, there's something with, within feminists in the last couple of years when it's just become this kind of advancing, you know, quite privileged white women that has led to Ivanka Trump being able to publish a feminist book. I don't think it has become that. I think some people will claim that, but I don't think that that's in essence what it is. So we shouldn't allow ourselves to, for them to own it, to make us feel that it has become no, okay. diluted. But I, that is news about her book. <laughs> I mean, is she in the movement? Is she? Well, I try and I always think that there are so many women being judged, there are so many minorities always being judged that I don't want to add to that judgment. Mm. You know, we're, and therefore I have a kind of sort of quite difficult to sustain self-denying ordinance of not criticising other women where I really got caught out where Piers Morgan um, <laughs> asked me about the, the Kardashians. Uh-huh. And what he obviously wanted to do... I mean, I was on a programme to talk about childcare or something, but, you know... Um, he wanted me to get into, you know, Harriet Harman slags off the Kardashians to make a bit of news. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to play that game. So I thought of something positive to say. Um, you know, I just said, well, you know, they, they're a matriarchy. That's better than a patriarchy when all said and done. And... that they are sisters and they don't have dependency on, on men. So I thought of a few things to say. And then, of course, it was Harriet Harman completely supports the Kardashians. So it's like, uh, I think that in a way, there is a, a serious point here, which is that it's quite easy for us to be judgmental. And actually, we are the victims of being judged all the time. Mm. And therefore, we, we are trying to be as good as we can, trying to fight for the progress that we can. And it's probably better to, to support what each other's doing rather than, um, than to find fault with it. But I'm going to be, have to stay right away from the Piers Morgan show when Ivanka Trump's book is published. <laughs> yes. out about it. And I do feel worried about the idea that somehow now women have all got to be very, very tall and very, very slim and have long blonde hair. I mean, that is the kind of visual thing that's going on with, with the kind of Trump, Trumpocracy. It's quite um, alarming. I'd like to return now to something that both Katrine and Harriet were talking about. Nordic culture. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's an, there's an emphasis on shared parenting more in Nordic cultures, and in other cultures there's um, an emphasis on the family being involved in caring. And as Harriet says, in the UK, there's more of an emphasis on women being responsible for caring for families and other caring responsibilities. Um, do you think that equal maternity and paternity leave would make a difference? Um, well, uh, I think it, it would make um, a lot of difference. It is, quite, it is quite paradoxical because 
women have fought for the extension of maternity leave and the increase in maternity pay in order to be able to make more compatible the work and the family responsibilities. And we have also fought for paternity pay and paternity leave. And that's quite odd, isn't it, really? Shouldn't it be men fighting for paternity pay and leave? And often men will say, but it's very difficult because we can't play an equal role in the family because paternity pay is not high enough in order to enable us to take that time off work, and that is a fact. But then I say, well, where is the men fighting for that? Where are their voices fighting for that? And um, so, so I think that, you know, that I, I'm just going to mention something about Norway, which I heard, which you can tell me. I know you're not Norwegian, and I shouldn't have <laughs> I can be Norwegian too. Okay. I'm doing terrible political incorrectness here. But I did hear that there was a survey done about the time that is taken... Uh, in Norway by men and by women in terms of time taken off because they've got similarly lots of family leave provision and that they did a a research project and they discovered that there's a correlation between the time at which men took off for their family leave and guess what it was correlated with? Football. Football. And also the elk hunting season as well. So actually, actually, you can... You've got to, it's got to be more than just um, making it possible. There's also got to be um, sort of social vanguardism, if you like. There's got to be political leadership of, of the argument that actually it's a downright good thing for a man to be able to share his family responsibilities. But then there's got to be the financial support to make that in practice possible. So I think it's got to be both the... The, the legal rights and the financial support, but also a bit of social engineering, as we used to lovingly call it in the olden days. Mm. Yeah, come um, I mean, I've heard that, the fact that it correlates with the moose hunting season about Sweden as well. So I, I think, I mean, I tried to look it up, and I think it's a little bit of an urban myth or fake news, as Mr. President likes to call it. Um, um, I think it did a little bit in the beginning, you know, when the Nordic nations in the early 90s started with this. But there's been tremendous progress done since. And the thing that has made the most progress with that is actually sort of tying months. You know, in Sweden, there's three months that are tied to the father, that if the father doesn't stay home with the child during those three months, you know, you don't get those three months. And that has, has made the biggest sort of change in sort of men actually spending time um, at home with their children. And now the debate in Sweden is about, you know, oh, you know, women get, I mean, in sort of middle classes, professional white people in Sweden, um, the, the, the norm is to, the, the woman takes the first six months off and then she goes back to work and the man takes the next six months. And now the discussion is about, oh, that's not really fair because, you know, the men get the more fun bit. And, and, and <laughs> um, so that's where we are in Sweden. So, yes, I suppose that is progress compared to, compared to Britain. Um, but, I mean, the point I do want to make about this is I think it's, it's tremendously important um, because it's shown to correlate as well with, you know, if you stay home with the, with the child in, in the beginning, you do take more responsibility even later on because you sort of, it's all about gaining confidence with, with the child and, you know, I'm able to do this. And it's a, it's a lot, lot about that. So it also seems to correlate with a more sort of equal division of housework la- later on. 
However, it's not sort of the holy grail of sort of fixing everything. I mean, that's what the Nordic experience has shown, that we do invest so much in this, but it doesn't seem to fix, you know, for example, women's progress in the private sector where we have huge problems in the Nordic nations. Um, and, you know, you can talk, you know, some people say that that is actually tied to the very generous parental leave as well because women take so much time off work that it's hard for them to then sort of get into a management position. But, but that's, an, that's an open debate. And also there used to be an assumption that sort of a high representation of women in politics would automatically lead to high representation of women in sort of other sectors. And the Scandinavian nations doesn't seem to quite prove that either. I mean, Sweden has had 50-50 in parliament since it's quite a while now, and 50-50 in government since sort of early, early 90s. But um, that doesn't has, seem to have translated at all into sort of progress for women in universities or women in, uh, in the private sector again. Um, so it's, it's more complicated than that this is just some kind of holy grail. But it's still very, very important. Okay, thank you. Ali, um, you were talking earlier about the equal pay in, that has been available since women started in the Navy um, for doing the same jobs. And uh, Nicola, you were mentioning not so much in academia because it's harder to see what's happening. Do you think that um, the requirement for employers to publish uh, the pay of men and women will increase, increase the rate of change? for equality of pay? In academia? I hope so, because it's very, in my view, very murky. And there's... there's um, I, uh, one of the, Sorry to be slightly academic for a moment, but one of the theories I really like is Bourdieu, and he talks about cultural capital and people having the resources and the knowledge and what's legitimate knowledge and what isn't legitimate knowledge. And there is a lot within the actual sector that kind of really speaks to Bourdieu's work. And what I mean by that is there's a lot that's really hidden. So I've only kind of learned in the last five years or so that in order to get a pay rise so I can, I can make a case, that's if you know that there's a particular panel within your university for making the case, that's if you know that, but also sector-wise you're most likely to get uh, a salary increase or be able to negotiate one if you've applied to another institution and you can then use that to uh, negotiate a counter-offer with your existing institution. So you, you have to... But that in itself seems to be based on slight inequality in the sense that, I mean, we know that women and uh, faculty of colour are more likely to be on short-term contracts and their particular kinds of projects, so there's not so much scope for negotiating a salary when on, on that kind of a contract. So the, the whole sphere and type of employment is quite messy, and it's quite, if you look at the, the Higher Education Statistics uh, Authority, that their data, you can see that there's fewer women, and certainly there's fewer faculty of colour who are on permanent contracts and also even though we, we pretend that everything is nice and equitable there is still a lot of judgment about uh, new and more established universities so the elite universities so there's a lot of uh, quiet snobbery about the types of universities you're working at so all of this is happening and you're trying to work out how do you best position yourself as marketable? Because it's a market economy, ultimately. So you're trying to work out how to position yourself as marketable in order then to be more uh, sellable on, on, that, on that market. Can I just mention that the, the idea of the um, 
pay transparency and firms above a certain, organisations above a certain size, having to publish every year the gap between the average hourly pay of men and the average hourly pay of women in that institution was to tackle the idea that everybody said, oh, unequal pay is terrible, but that's not what happens here. Um, and, and then what the import, what's going to be important when this is now coming into effect and all organisations, you know, including universities, will have to publish this um, is for what we do about it because to make sure that that information is out there and then it won't be about whether or not you go in and actually say, uh, I've, got, I've seen another job somewhere else and therefore the, the organisation will be thinking we are behind in that our pay gap is bigger than this institution and we better sort out how we narrow it, where are some women, we better start giving them some pay rises because once you can compare different institutions then there will be a big pressure from within those institutions and people will be able to say, why are we so far, why are we not improving year on year in terms of our pay gap and why are other institutions in this sector doing so much better? And I include in that political parties. You know, the Labour Party will have to publish our gender pay gap and the Conservative Party will have to publish their gender pay gap because we've got more than the employees, you know, that... I mean, it makes us an organisation that qualify to actually have to publish it. And then we'll all have to be walking the talk and women will have to be hurriedly forced to have pay rises because it will be an absolute embarrassment. And what can they say? Oh, well, just the men in this organisation are just so much better than the women and that's why they just have to be at the top and have to be so much better paid. I mean, it will be quite problematic when this information comes out. It's going to be a big effective league lever and I want it to be that I, I worry thinking about how institutions respond to policy I worry that there'll be a kind of sanitizing argument that's made for why the gap exists which you know be like well we've lost x number we've lost x number of women in the last year or so but it's because they were really great women which means they were marketable so they went to other universities and that's what I think there'll be some rationale that institutions use to justify the, the, the gap and I suppose what I would want to see in my sector is that so we we've, we're in a situation where this gap's published but I'd like to see um, criteria around the gap incorporated within existing initiatives that matter to the sector. One being, as just as an example, the National Student Satisfaction Survey. And in respect of what your views are about the survey, universities take that really seriously. So if you were to incorporate a question that spoke to the gap within that, I think it would boost or encourage them to take the gap and how they explain the gap and address the gap far more seriously. Yes, it will, be a... it will be interesting to see if publishing the gender pay gap statistics will affect recruitment into some of these companies and organisations. I have to say, I mean, I feel incredibly grateful that this has never been a, a concern for me, and I don't think I really appreciated until uh, maybe only about five years ago the, the sheer equity that it gave me, the fact that I knew, I had no question about the fact that I was being paid differently from my, or being paid the same as my male counterparts, and that therefore, 
my pay and my promotion was based on merit, not on uh, not on having to argue my case for a for a pay rise in mm. comparison to an unknown figure. Yeah. But the pay gap in organisations where it's very male-dominated at the top will be a very big pay gap because there will be women, but they will be tending to be at the bottom. And in that case, it will challenge that organisation. Well, how can we make sure we get those women from the bottom to the top? And how can we make sure that we don't lose them when they go off and take maternity leave? And how can we make sure that even though they're part-time, they aren't then just overlooked and regarded as not properly committed so it kind of sets up once that information is published and I hope you know in the academic world as well as in the political world and you know the private sector and everything that those simple figures that everybody will know what is the LSE's pay gap and how does it compare with King's and we'll all have to have those in our mind well before we open up questions to the audience, are there, finally from the panel, are there any key points that emerge from hearing about the experiences of others, um, the other people on the panel, that, and how we can encourage greater sharing of this kind of information and expertise? Well, what would you do? I was going to ask you, Ali, is that in my in my mother's day it was like you had a choice you could either choose to be doing something at work or you could choose to have a family and children or at least if you did one you couldn't do the other and I I don't know very much about the Navy but when I was equality minister I did work with the Naval Families Association who I thought were absolutely a brilliant organisation but I thought the patterns of like having to go underwater in a submarine and then be out of contact with your family for really a long period of time and having to move to different places to train, like being based in Faz Lane but then having to train in Canada. I, um, I mean, I was looking at it from the point of view of what were mostly wives um, um, who were there looking after the children, but I couldn't quite work out how you would do that if you didn't have equal division of labour in the home, and when there was a man and a woman in the Navy, how it was very difficult for them to combine their careers because they were being sent to different places. So it's like politics feels like quite easy compared to the House of Commons, compared to the submarine. (laughs) Yes, and I think there are definitely issues with that. And what we tend to see is that the majority of um, service women are married to service men, unlike... Uh, clearly there aren't enough service women for all the service men to be married to service women <laughs> so um, we, uh, we uh, and it is definitely a challenge um, of uh, keeping that parity of career uh, we have seen an increase in the take up of uh, some of the men taking on additional uh, sorry the um, additional paternity leave so they take the between the second Sort of six months and or however much they they would want to take of the of the year, um, but there is still very much a a social norm dominance that it is the female career that will take the back burner. She'll be the one who doesn't go back to sea, uh, which I suspect is slightly governed by uh, governed by two things. One, um, domestically, we're more set up to that. The the expectation is that the woman won't want to go back to sea 
uh, and actually quite a lot of them don't want to go back to sea for nine months or to go underwater in a submarine in particular. I think we'll see some challenges in there. Um, when you go away for three months with virtually no contact from home. Um, And it's a challenge that I think we're going to have to continue addressing as we we see more women coming through. Um, And I'll be honest, I don't know how we get round that um, without uh, just career managing each person individually, which is very much what we try to do. And where, where I'm sitting at the moment, we try and get service couples in together so that we can manage their careers to keep them in the same place for the majority of the amount of time that we can. Uh, and clearly the provision of service housing, which is under review, is, is a key part of that. Um, we'll open up questions to the floor now. Where there are some stewards with roving microphones, and if you could say who you are and where you're from, and I'll take three questions at a time, um, three in a row, and then the panel will answer them. So this. Hi, my name is Laura. I'm a third-year student here at the LSE, studying international relations. Just want to thank the panel for your for your talk. It was really great. Um, my question would be directed to Harriet. So women have to work a lot harder to, than men to be successful in politics. They have to conform to a certain image, suffer more press scrutiny, receive a helping hand from institutional mechanisms such as quotas and all women's shortlists, and very often struggle to assert their de- their identity in a male-dominated profession. So I'd like to ask you, what would you say is the most important thing a woman has to do and can do in order to get ahead in politics? Okay. Uh, Let's take a question from the middle and then from the other side of the room. So, uh, yes, you. Hi, I'm Emma. I'm a master's student from South Africa. Um, This is more or less openly directed, but particularly speaking to what you said, Dr. Rollock, um, about institutions of privilege and recognizing privilege. And coming from South Africa, which obviously has a very complicated relationship with gender and race and class, and coming from so recent an experience of legislated discrimination, I feel like a lot of people, particularly other white South Africans, are having a lot of difficulty with grasping the idea that you can do away with legislative discrimination but still have systems of systematic and structural discrimination. And it's particularly true in terms of intersectional issues, and these are coming to the fore now in South Africa. But, I mean, LSE loves to make the economic argument for something. And, but I feel like a lot more needs to be done in terms of those norms and those attitudes and saying, no, we must treat women fairly because that's the right thing to do rather than say we should treat women fairly because they'll, if we're paying them more, they'll be contributing to the tax base. And that's, I think, it's an issue that I think, to my mind, spans a lot of intersectional issues and something that, coming from South Africa, I feel like a lot of people are really not grappling with. And coming to London, which I thought would be potentially a more progressive space, was quite struck by how many people, especially how many white women and white men, fail to interrogate that, um, which was quite astounding to me. Thank you. And a question from over this side. I think my general question is about your advice to women in work today, where the balance might be between dealing with the reality of the situation at the moment, 
and getting towards the change that they would like to see. And I had two very quick examples. One was of a, a friend of mine who went into a performance review, and she's a junior, and she got told basically that she needed to lower the register of her voice because her voice was very high compared to all the men in the room. And she, she really struggled with that, like, do you follow that advice because it'll help you get ahead, or do you go, well, no, <laughs> that's my voice. And, uh, and, <laughs> and another example was um, not someone junior, she was senior, she bossed... She was the boss. She was the boss. And um, she was chairing a meeting, and, the, and a guy said, to her, said something along the lines of, well, she said this, but she's a woman, so take that with a pinch of salt. And my friend, who's very nice, um, didn't know whether to sort of say something at that point because she didn't want to make the man feel silly. But she really could have, you know, she could have absolutely taken him to task because that's not acceptable. So my point was just, where do you think the balance is? Do you want to... Um, you're ready. Do you want to start now? Am I ready? Well, yep. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to answer yeah. a question directly addressed to you? So, responding... Because it was a statement, Emma, wasn't it? Just an observation. Yeah. yeah. What, more, what more can you do? Like, how can we... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think the issue with the UK is that... Um, and I'm speaking more pre-Brexit, but it certainly still is the case today, is that we really laud this notion of being tolerant, which is a word I absolutely despise, because it suggests putting up with these kinds of, you know, these people who are getting in our way, and if only they would integrate, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with them? And they keep going on... Also, some of us keep going on about race, and I think the issue with the race per se is that it makes people deeply uncomfortable. And it's not something that we are even comfortable in acknowledging. So as someone for whom this is a specialism, and I also occupy, I'm a woman of colour, I get positioned in a very particular way. So, and that's a constant issue, and it does connect with the point that was made over here. There's a constant issue about how one is positioned and how you manage and negotiate that. I mean, I was really taken by the points you made earlier at the beginning, Harriet, around the resistance to the women's movement in terms of the political arena. But actually, I would also say that, that in terms of race, the, the resistance is there. It's not necessarily loud, I mean, it is in the context of Brexit, certainly, because we see Home Office figures that show uh, peaks in terms of racist incidents and so on. But let's not be fooled that racism is only about overt acts of racism. It operates in really quiet, insidious ways. It operates in terms of, and this does overlap with my, female, my white female colleagues, in terms of the ways that you're spoken to or ignored at meetings, in terms of the way that you're told to change your voice, in terms of the amazement, if I dare, change my hairstyle, and the attention that it gets, and, oh my God, how long did that take? And actually, those little acts, which in the literature, and we don't, again, we don't talk about it in the UK. I, I can go on, by the way. I'll try and be so soon. <laughs> Maybe other people... Uh, well, just, to, just to wrap up, it's called racial microaggressions. They are something that people of colour have to live with all the time. And I was really interested in terms of the conversations around childcare, because when I am 
whether it's my professional or my kind of off-duty capacity, talking with other women of colour, not just from within the academy, but from the private and other public sector organisations, they're not talking about childcare. They're talking about their work, about being undermined, their work not being valued, about their skill sets not being valued. Those are the quiet and insidious issues that face women of colour consistently and persistently, rather, across different sectors. I could go on and on and on, but I'll be quiet. But I will just flag, I'm speaking at, um, at WOW, at the WOW Festival at the South Bank, on, on similar issues with Emma Dabiri. Just, uh, Catherine and Ali, have you had any of those experiences where you've been asked to change your voice? <laughs> or even your yes. hair? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, with the, uh, with the uh, thing about having to change your voice or the, the belittling comments to, uh, to her as a leader, you know, I think that's something... Uh, changing yourself is never going to work because if you are going to lead and you are going to have that position of responsibility, you have to be yourself because it, when you are under time of stress and tension, if you are also trying to be something else, then you, you will have to be superhuman to succeed. I mean, it's that bit from the X-Men film, isn't it, when he drops the weight on Rogue and she has to change back to being blue. <laughs> to stop it falling off you know it, but it is that it's that basic that if you are trying to hide a part of you you cannot fulfill your potential um, and I think you must say something however much you worry that it's going to belittle the man that said it because let's be honest he's belittling you by saying it in the first place now Now, there are ways and means of doing that as well, and, uh, and slightly sarcastic humour, I think, can be quite an effective way because it allows a diffusion of the situation at the same time. No, I, I completely agree. Um, and I, no, I completely agree. And the thing is, I mean, even if you, someone will ask you to do this and another person will ask you to do that, you're never going to be you know, right. And a woman is never right. You're either you know, too masculine or too feminine or too ugly or too pretty or too fat. You know, it's, it's always going to be something. So you might as well not just not try. And, and regarding to sort of comebacks, um, one thing that I sort of you have used is just to sort of ask somebody, you know, oh, what do you mean by that? Um, and then they say, oh, I'll just, I just mean lowy voice. What do you mean by that? And often, you know, after three or four sort of comebacks like that, they actually kind of realize what they're doing, and that has, has worked for me. Um, and then I think um, I didn't do it with the Nobel Prize when I was too intimidated. Uh, <clears throat> I did shame in on national television afterwards, though. <laughs> That's another bit of it. Um, another thing which I read about is well, if you're you know more women in a in a situation is to sort of you know acknowledge each, each other the classic thing you know if a woman speaks in a meeting then say oh as as Ali was saying you know if a man tries to interrupt and that you have that kind of silent agreement with the other women in the room um that is a very very useful thing um so Laura just picking up on you, your question first I think that um 
the way to go forward in politics is to know why you want to be in politics. And I think sometimes, um, especially conservative women, talk about politics as a career. And I think that it's not a sort of career. It's a cause. It's a vocation. And it's not just a job. You've got to be in it because you know what change you want to make and what you want to do. So I think that that is the most important thing. Learning how to do it, well, you know, there's no right way to do it and everybody does it in their different way. But I think knowing what you want to do um, is, is incredibly important. And your point up there, sorry, I didn't catch your name. Sally. Sally's point. Honestly, the amount of time I've spent lying awake at night worrying about whether or not I've made too much of a fuss or not enough fuss. <laughs> and it is very, very difficult because if you're in a room of a majority of women and, like, there's three men there and some prat of a man says something, you can just slap him down and that's fine. But if it's a room which is all men and you're kind of on your own there, then it's much more difficult. And I'll just give you a couple of examples because... Um, one was um, when we had the G20 after um, when Gordon was Prime Minister and we had the global financial crisis and they all came, Obama, Barroso, you know, they all came to London to be working about what to do with the G20, the global financial crisis. And, uh, and I was in the Cabinet at the time and, and Deputy Leader and my office said to me, oh, you know, you've got the invite for the, the G20 dinner. So I said, oh, that's great. They seemed a bit looking, a bit hanged on about it. And I said, and they would go, it's not great, actually. So I said, well, why not? And they said, you've been invited to the wives' dinner. <laughs> so, so then I had to sit down with, my, with the women in my team, because most of my team, well, they were all women, and have a po political discussion about whether it was right to say to the wives, ha, huh, I'm better than you because I'm elected and I'm a real person here in the G20. I'm not just a wife and therefore I'm going to reject this invite. I'm too good to sit with you at the dinner. Or, or whether or not I should say, I might be a woman, but I'm actually nobody's wife here. I'm actually the deputy leader of the Labour Party and a cabinet minister. So anyway, we had to have this long doctrinal discussion about what to do. Um, and we decided that I couldn't be rude to... It would be unsisterly to be, like, uh, rejecting all those women as they were, I was too good to sit with them. So I went to the wives' dinner, and there was then a wives' photograph where we were all photographed together. <laughs> and I was, like, the not-wife. And then I, had to, I sat next to the Canadian uh, Prime Minister's wife, not Justin Trudeau, sadly. Um, uh, and we talked about diets all night long. And, I mean, it was really awful. And then, so that was just, you know... And then there was another occasion where... Um, the first cabinet meeting after I got elected as deputy leader, and what happens is, and you'll all find this in, in your work and situation, seating arrangements are important. And who is powerful in a room and who's sitting in whose eye line and next to who is, tells a big story about what is going on in the room and shapes the decision. Okay, so the cabinet, as you can imagine, is absolutely tops in that sort of Kremlinography. So the Prime Minister sits here, and right in front of him slash her is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
on one side is the foreign secretary, on the other side is the home secretary. So, you know, right in the eye line on the other side of the table. And then next to the prime minister is the top civil servant running the entire civil service, sitting right next to the prime minister. And on the other side is the prime minister's deputy. So when I got elected as deputy leader and I won the flipping election and actually got elected deputy leader, then there was the first cabinet meeting after I'd been elected and I went toddling into the cabinet. And it was a new cabinet because it was Gordon Brown's first cabinet. So uh, there was name places in the table. And having been in the cabinet before, I thought I would be in John Prescott's seat, which Mm. is sitting next to the Prime Minister. And actually, it was like the three bears who's sitting in my seat. (laughs) Is that the name tag said Jack Straw. (laughs) And the person sitting in the chair was Jack Straw in my chair. And then I looked down to see where my name tag was. And it was almost in the next room. It was so far down the table, there was probably light would hardly reach it. And I thought, okay, am I going to start by the first cabinet meeting with everybody's arriving, Gordon is prime minister for the first time, it's his first cabinet meeting, everybody's newly this, newly chancellor of the exchequer, newly home secretary and everything. Am I going to say, point of order before we start on the business, Jack Straw sitting in my seat. And... You know, I should have done, but I didn't. I didn't. And it was like I slunk down to the end of the table, and then, of course, we had to have the photograph of the first cabinet meeting, and everybody's all lined up. And you're lined up according to the places where you actually sit. And once again, I was right down in the, in the twilight. And these things happen all the time, and knowing when you should actually challenge, it's not easy. It's not just... Are putting people down. It's, it's working out. And I think sometimes what needs to be done is you need to think, okay, that is not all right, but instead of absolutely you know, sounding off about it now, I'm going to work out what is the solution to that problem. I'm going to get a lot of my sisterhood fuming and angry on my part, and then either me or them is going to insist on it changing. And that is the story that should have happened as well about me not being Deputy Prime Minister ever, that basically, you know, I was not appointed Deputy Prime Minister. I should have said, look, I am Deputy Leader, just I need to be made Deputy Prime Minister and let's get on with it. Um, and I didn't because the moment never seemed right. First of all, there was floods in the west of England. Then there was blue tongue disease ravaging sheep in Yorkshire. Then there was the global financial crisis. And I never felt the moment was right to say, can we talk about me now? And the fact that actually... I need to be Deputy (laughs) Prime Minister. But actually, I should have done. And if it was any other woman, I would have kicked the door down and say, forget about the blue tongue disease. She should be Deputy Prime Minister. She's been elected. And the the trouble is, you're always trying to, to make that balance. But I would say, never just let it go by. Think about it. Talk to your sisterhood and have a plan. Um, That's what I would do. I didn't do that enough. But, you know, my next life, I would have done. We have time for uh, some quick questions. If we could have uh, the person right at the back there. And also, uh, 
Again, middle of this row down here. Well, actually, we'll go over this side first. Um, the one step down, curly hair, hand up, denim shirt. <laughs> and then back, back over that side again. To uh, Can I just thank the panellists for a very good discussion? Um, I wanted to ask about the issue of childcare and... Um, absentee fathers and single motherhood and how that's an impediment to um, uh, equality between men and women in the workplace and particularly how single motherhood affects female employment patterns. Um, from a policy perspective, what sorts of steps do you think could possibly be taken to rectify this situation? So my question is mostly for Dr. Rollock, but anyone who might want to answer it. I take issues with my mom's feminism. Uh, she was a single mother and she raised two children alone and she's also a doctor. But um, at some point we always fight and it comes down to the biology of feminism. So she is a neurologist <laughs> but, and there is no evidence of our brains being different from men's. But she thinks, you know, we know so little of the brain that we might one day discover that there is actual biological differences. And she makes the argument, somewhat irrationally it seems to me, that women are more caring and more multitasking because we are women and men you know, it's a bit along the lines of what you said before. Men may be more able to put themselves forward because they're more self-assertive or whatever. And I have an issue with that because it means that you can never, you can never kind of defeat these stereotypes and they pigeonhole you in your gender. So I was wondering to what extent... She actually makes the argument it can be useful to make these distinctions. I was wondering to what extent do you think that biological arguments on different gender equalities are detrimental or positive for the cause of equity. Thank you. And uh, last question over here. Uh, end of the row near the wall. Um, we've talked a bit tonight about um, kind of challenging men's perceptions, so whether that's in the 97% in Parliament or in, in the Navy. Um, and it's been great to hear Harriet talk about kind of the sisterhood. Um, but I wonder kind of what we can do to change women's perceptions of women, because... The people that have asked me, like, when are you going to have a family, have been women. I've never been asked that by a man. Um, and I, I think there's something really interesting in how women do create that sisterhood and how that, that strength of um, kind of shared experience can be galvanised in a really positive way. Thank you. Thank you. If you could keep your answers fairly brief, those are all excellent questions and don't require brevity, but I'm afraid we don't have much time left. Uh, who'd like to start? I'll start on the challenging other women's perceptions. Um, yeah, that's certainly something I've experienced. And when I first joined the Navy, actually it was the wives of the sailors that were more vitriolic against the women being in the workplace than, uh, than the men. Because once they saw us doing the same work, they kind of accepted us. But I think uh, a lot of this is to do with our social perceptions of where we should see women working. Um, and I think developing that, that sisterhood is it's finding professional equals not just within your own profession but then stretching that out into other, uh, other areas and finding relatable uh, 
um, topics. I think a lot of things like childcare, sometimes it's a, almost a question asked through envy because they feel that they've given up their career in order to achieve this. And there's, a, you know, I mean, I have no children myself, so I think it's sometimes, well, you've just gone on and you've left people like me behind to have the children. So it, it's finding that moment that you can relate that there is a common ground to then move your, your argument and your relationship beyond that point to, so that you can fight the cause across the whole uh, across the whole area. And who'd like to answer the question on childcare? It was single mothers, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, just very briefly, no, I think affordable childcare is, is you know, the key point when it comes to that in, in this country. I mean, Britain has the, the most expensive childcare of any OECD country. So obviously for, for single mothers, it's, you know, very, very difficult to to get back into into paid work. Um, so I, I think that's a massive key. I think you should also look look at sort of the benefit system and look how that's set up so you're not sort of creating traps for people. You could have more things connected to to income, you know, the, the amount you receive and these sort of things, which have been quite successful in, in Scandinavia, those kind of models. I mean, I, I, we don't have much time, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. So the, the biology question. Um, sorry, what have you, oh, you're there. Um, I, I don't have much uh, um, track. I don't I think there's much track in the kind of biological notion of feminism. That's my own personal view. I think that much of what we perceive to be gendered is socially constructed. That's my, that's my own personal view. But I also, I, and part of that is that we breathe and live through stereotypes that seem to have their own life. So I was really interested in what you said earlier, Katrine, Katrine about um, your, you know, you'd respond with, I'm sorry, what did you say? I think if I were to say that, it gets seen as being aggressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's so true. That is very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a very short answer to the question. Thank you. Any final comments from the panel? Um, what do you mean? I think, in a way, the, the point about um, the absentee fathers and um, the issue about challenging perceptions also goes back to uh, the point that Emma made about beyond the legislative framework, the cultural framework. And I think that there is a role for, for the state, for government, to take a lead in terms of bringing together all the research that shows that good time spent between the father and the child in the early stages is a positively good thing. And in the past, those of us on the left always were against the idea of the state playing any role in the family because it was like supporting patriarchy, that you've got to get married and stay married or else you're deviant, you've got to have plenty of children and you've got to be women in the home and men outside the home. And we reacted against that on the basis that the best we could aspire to was to stop government telling people how to lead their family lives, um, not least because most of the people who were in Cabinet telling everybody they should be getting married and staying married had had plenty of divorces themselves. But So our aspiration was to get them out of the idea of taking a leading role in the family, but actually probably our aspiration ought to be for a very positive, progressive role for government where they actually do take a lead on the basis of human rights and equality and the interests of children and, and actually take forward those, whether it's in education, whether it's bringing forward with research, in order to back up um, 
a legislative framework, but I think that we're um, very much going potentially in the wrong direction at the moment. So probably the state staying out of families is probably the best thing for right now with the government we've got. But as for the biology of feminism, as for the biology of feminism, I would love to hang out one supper time with you and your mum having that discussion. It must be um, absolutely incredible. But I, I agree with, with Nicola. I think that, that, that it's so socially constructed that men don't often have a chance to get in touch with their caring side uh, and women don't uh, necessarily be allowed the freedom to assert their more ambitious and working side because they're immediately regarded as strange, threatening Mm. and unpleasant. (laughs) That's me. Okay. Well, we could go on. There's so much more that we could cover, but unfortunately we've run out of time this evening. But might I remind you that some of our panellists, three of our panellists, are able to sign copies of their books for you this evening. And um, I'd just like to thank them on behalf of all of us for spending time with us this evening and allowing us to hear their thoughts on such an interesting subject. Thank you. Thank you.